Grace, mercy, and peace to you this day from God our Father and from our risen and ascended Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Back when I was starting my professional career as an industrial engineer, a significant portion of my work involved the development of processes and procedures. Some of these processes and procedures might describe to a person how they were to operate a particular piece of equipment. Other times they might give safety instructions or possibly even the proper way to carry out some administrative task. The most challenging processes and procedures that I had to develop, however, were usually those that described how it was a product was to be assembled and then tested and finally then prepared for transportation. Now these weren't simple products like fly swatters or ballpoint pens, mind you. They were very complex electromechanical systems that sometimes consisted of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of parts, miles and miles of wiring, and very precise tolerances. They were more complicated than your car, and they were more expensive than your house. If every part wasn't in just the right place, if every nut and bolt and screw and rivet weren't properly fastened, if every wire didn't run from the correct origin to the correct destination, these machines just wouldn't work. The steps that had to be followed to make all of these things happen, they also ran into the tens of thousands sometimes. They had to be done in a certain order so that all the pieces were there, all the pieces would fit, and nothing would be left out or be put on in the wrong order. Now, if there was a problem with assembling one of these devices, you could usually trace it back to somebody not doing something in the proper sequence. I sometimes had to go back and figure that out, too, so that the problem could be corrected. And although I'm sure many of you have noticed that occasionally I'll flip-flop the creed in the sermon or get confused on the order of the offering and the prayer of the church, I do usually at least have some sort of semblance of the proper order in which things ought to go. So, maybe if you're like me, it seems a little bit strange to you sometimes during the church year when we read a selection from the book of Acts as our first lesson, and then later after the epistle, we read a gospel lesson. It's probably strange to me because the gospels and Acts are historical accounts, are they not? They record what was being done by Jesus during his ministry and then by the apostles during their ministry. And I always like to hear history in the right order. If you paid attention during the reading of our lessons this morning, perhaps this out-of-sequence situation seemed even more noticeable to you than usual. That's because today, our first and our third lessons are not only reversed in their historical sequence, they actually overlap. And that doesn't happen too often, does it? As we observe the ascension of our Lord today, we are confronted with the breakpoint between Luke's gospel account and his record of the early church in the book of Acts. Luke and Acts are, of course, a connected record. Two volumes in a series, you might say. 
Our first lesson this morning actually is the very first part of that second volume, and our gospel lesson this morning is the very last part of the first volume. You got that all straight? What the Holy Spirit is doing in in St. Luke's writing is taking these two lessons and forming a bridge. These lessons connect the time between when Jesus physically dwelt among humankind during his earthly ministry and the current era of the Christian church, the era in which we dwell. Now the pivotal, pivotal or connecting event in this bridge is the ascension of Jesus, occurring 40 days after his resurrection from the dead. And Luke captures this event in both of his volumes. And though we might not think of it in such terms, we're all quite familiar with this literary or artistic technique. The recounting of the ascension of Jesus at the beginning of Acts sets the stage for the beginning of the Christian church, a church that is going to have to function without the physical presence of its leader. It's much like a technique that you see from week to week on ongoing television programs. Each episode ends with an announcer speaking over the highlights from the following week's show. For example, you might hear, next time on America's Most Wanted, or what have you. Then when the program comes on the following week, you might hear, previously on, and fill in the name of the show here. A bridge, of course, is intended to allow physical movement from one place to another. Usually it takes place between two relatively high spots and goes over a relatively low spot or some sort of an obstacle in between them. So not only does St. Luke use a literary bridge to connect his two-volume record on the work of Christ and his church, the ascension of Jesus himself is a bridge of some sorts. The ascension moves Jesus physically from earth to heaven, of course. But it also takes the church from the twin high points of Jesus' destruction of sins on the cross and his defeat of death at the resurrection and begins to move it across the low spot of what now toward the sublime and eternal glories of heaven. Along with Pentecost, which we will celebrate next week, the ascension transitions the church from the tangible work done by Christ during his time on earth to the tangible work that is to be done by the church. This is done not in a vacuum, but with a real and spiritual support of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which came on Pentecost. Now it's entirely appropriate that this transition, this movement, or this bridging, takes place in the ministry of Christ and in the ministry of the church. For our God is a God both of physicality and a God of movement. And he's been such since the very beginning of time. While God is a spiritual being, he chose to connect himself with not just spiritual beings of his own creation. Instead, he chose to move and he chose to create a physical world to be populated by flesh and blood creatures. His spirit moved, but his spirit moved over something that is very physical, the surface of the waters, at the very beginning of his creative process. He formed man from physical matter, and he formed woman from a physical man. He gave them physical bodies, and he gave them a physical way of generating their own kind, 
so that they might share in his creative work. And throughout history, when the Lord wanted to accomplish something within his physical world, he caused movement of people or things in order to carry out that work. He moved sinners out from the garden. He floated Noah up upon the churning waters. He moved Abraham from Ur to Haran to Canaan to Egypt and back to Canaan again. He later moved Israel down into Egypt to chasten them. And finally, he moved them back out of Egypt and into Canaan to bless them. And when they rebelled, again and again, he moved nations against them. And again and again, he sometimes moved Israel and Judah into other nations as well. But throughout all of this, a far greater movement of God was in store. A physical movement and a movement without equal. The second articles of the Nicene and the Apostles' Creeds are largely about the physicality and the movement of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The movement of our God, who, is, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven as the Holy Spirit conceived a physical child. The physical movement of that child down the birth canal, born of the Virgin Mary. The physical movement of his suffering and his dying as he carried that cross out from Jerusalem and was lifted up upon it for the forgiveness of your sins. The movement of his body to the tomb, a broken body given for you. Finally then, in accordance with all the scriptures had promised, he came forth from that tomb, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And he was bodily taken up to heaven in plain sight of many witnesses, as we heard just a short time ago. It's interesting to note how the entire attitude of these witnesses, the disciples now become apostles, their attitude about what it meant to have a God who was physical and who was moving in their lives had been so radically shifted in just a few weeks' time. You'll remember that in the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples were deeply saddened by the news that soon Jesus would be going away from them. They knew that he had spoken of his death at that time, and they were rightly saddened by it. But they were also confused and concerned by Jesus' other words, his words about him having to leave to return to the Father, to prepare a place for them, and to one day send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. But note how it is they respond differently here, in Luke's accounts of the Ascension, in, God, in his Gospel, and in the book of Acts. There is that sense of awe and amazement we know as they stare up at the sky. There are questions posed to Jesus before he ascended about the coming of the kingdom. And there are instructions given by Jesus too. Orders for them to trustingly remain in Jerusalem in spite of the dangers to their lives. They are to await there for a great and special gift a great power that Jesus would send them from the Father. So you see, in spite of all of these doubts and concerns, Jesus' departure does not create fear or panic for his followers. Instead, once they are jolted out of their sense of wonder by the words of the two angels, they return to Jerusalem with great joy. Clearly, they had already received the gift of faith, so it was 
true that the Holy Spirit was already at work in their lives. Yet that same Holy Spirit would soon come upon them with great power in a way that would provide them the means to give this power for the benefit of others as well. Jesus' ascension was not an abandonment of those apostles in His fledgling church. Rather, it was a physical movement that completed His earthly ministry. It shifted the responsibility for carrying out the church's mission to proclaim the good news from the one divine and human nature of Jesus to a new unity, one comprised of the human nature of believers and the divine nature of the Holy Spirit. Now sometimes, when our faith is wavering a little bit, we may begin to wonder why it is Jesus had to ascend into heaven rather than remaining physically present in the world in a way in which he could be seen and heard and touched. After all, wouldn't that be much more effective, a much more convincing way to get people to believe in his love for them and his work on their behalf for their salvation? And isn't that one of the great criticisms of Christianity by those outside the church? That we believe in a God that we cannot see with our physical eyes. That we trust in a witness given to us by individuals who have long since departed this world. Just like that Savior who has departed this world and is no longer physically seen. Yet we do indeed trust We trust that the one who was conceived, born, suffered, died, was buried and rose again, did also indeed physically ascend into heaven. And he did so because just as all of his other physical movements, his ascension achieves God's purposes. It once again demonstrates his power, his glory, and his divinity. It returns him once again to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, from where He will reign eternally, and from where He will one day move again, returning as the judge of all and the chief of the heavenly harvest. In the interim, He has sent us, He has sent His church to be His body which remains here on earth, and He has sent us His comforter. The Holy Spirit who guides us, protects us, teaches us, and motivates us. At the same time also, From His throne of glory on high, Jesus hears our prayers and He intercedes for us on our behalf with the Father. By this too, we are comforted. We know that in spite of all of our weaknesses and our deep, deep corruption, the unblemished Lamb, whose body and blood was the perfect and acceptable sacrifice for our sins, He now speaks perfect and acceptable words to the Father. For all of these reasons, we ought to thank and praise our Lord and Savior for His ascension, for having completed His work of salvation here on earth, and for returning to heaven to prepare a place for us. Even as we do so, we carry on the work of proclaiming the good news of His work to others. We proclaim His name to all the nations, so that they too may inherit a portion of that wondrous heavenly kingdom. Christ physically ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. Yes, that's true. Yet He remains constantly active in this world through the Holy Spirit. And He constantly sends us His gifts. And He gives us His blessings through His one holy Christian apostolic church. So don't be left standing there gazing up into heaven. 
Instead, let heaven wash over your skin each time you remember the first time that it happened to you at the font. Let heaven flow into your ears and into your hearts each and every time his word is proclaimed to you. And let heaven pass over your lips and be tasted on your tongue as Christ returns to you again and again and again, bringing his body and his blood to you and opening to you a glimpse of the eternal feast that you will enjoy in heaven, but enjoy now each time you approach his altar. Jesus moved from earth to heaven in his ascension because that was the next step of his divinely appointed path, the journey on which he had embarked. It is a path on which you too will also travel. A few steps behind your master, of course, because that's where disciples always walk. But you are linked to him forever. And where he leads, you too will surely one day follow. In the holy name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now reigns eternally on high. Amen.